Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk, where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about stuff. I'm Emily. And I'm Sarah. And today I'm going to do what is borderline a cheater topic because I have a background in botany. So this took about 20 minutes to research. Yay! Where does the green go in leaves and fall? (laughs) Oh. It's not actually as sad as it could be. So leaves are green because they contain chlorophyll. It's a set of green pigments that are critical for absorbing light in plant leaves and in cyanobacteria and in algae. The green pigment means the leaf is absorbing all wavelengths of visible light except green. It's reflecting the green light wavelengths. So Hmm. when we see colors, we're seeing the reflection into a wavelength of light into our eyeballs and smacking our retinas and causing our brains <laughs> causing our brains to think thoughts. I like how you put that. Yeah. <laughs> there are chlorophylls A, B, C1, C2, D, and F, and they all have slightly different structures. And each type of chlorophyll often occurs in the same type of organisms. So chlorophyll A is universal, B is mostly in plants, C1 and C2 are mostly in algae, and D and F are usually in cyanobacteria. They're all related. They're all green, but they're all slightly different. Plants also have other pigments in them. You can see this more obviously both in the autumn, because leaves don't just go from, I mean, sometimes they do, but they don't typically go from green to brown the end. You'll see a lot of fall colors such as oranges, yellows, purples, reds maybe light green can you think of any others get like they go light green and then they go yellow yeah so there are lots of other pigments in plant leaves that are often always there some of i should say some of them are always there and they're covered up by the green because there's so much chlorophyll in a leaf and some of them actually start really kickstart their development in the leaf after the chlorophyll starts being dismantled by the leaf. So the other pigments include things like flavonoids and anthocyanins, Yummy. Which, which are like reds and purples, and they help in absorbing red lights. They also include things like tannins, which people have probably heard about if they're wine enthusiasts. In red wines, there are often a lot of tannins. Carotenoids, which are oranges, yellows, some reds, they help in absorbing blue lights. And Betalanes, 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 B-E-T-A-L-A-I-N-S. Betalanes? Yeah. <laughs> yes, sure. <laughs> uh, it's similar to anthocyanin pigments, but it's in things like beets and Swiss chard. Oh, yummy. Yeah, a lot of these, you're going to hear these and you're thinking like, oh, that's in food I eat. Yeah, a lot of the pigments have micronutrients in them that we find physically useful or tasty. And then they also correspond with a color of light being reflected back into our eyes and the rest of the colors of visible light being absorbed into them. So where does it go? It kind of dies, but gets recycled. Mm -hmm. Chlorophyll and chloroplasts and leaves in general take energy to maintain and to replace when damaged. As daylight hours decrease in the late summer and early autumn, it becomes less advantageous to have a bunch of 
here's how I put this. Energetically expensive solar panels slash swamp coolers attached to you. Because that's what a leaf is. It cools the plant down. It releases or it moves water through the plant. It absorbs solar energy and makes food. So it's like a little factory. And these are energetically expensive. And also, if you're going to be utilizing them, they require replacement and repair. Man, plants are cool. And because the tissues are softer than, say, bark or wood or even a lot of stem tissues, damage from things like insects, ice crystals, etc., are easy to incur. So it's not just that, like, oh, it takes a lot of energy to make food. It also takes energy to fight off infections that start from leaves. It takes energy to repair leaves so that they can be useful. And they're full of water, which means that when they freeze, cellular damage from ice crystals is not uncommon. That's why plants, often you'll see, even in your garden, like plants just sort of wilt and fall into mush after they've frozen. Yeah. It's because of cellular damage for the most part, because of the water expanding and the crystals of ice basically shredding things. Yeah. It's why you need cryopreservatives, which we discussed in our unused IVF embryo. I was just going to say that. And sperm bank episode. And I, I don't think there are cryopreservative behaviors in plants that can maintain the integrity of a lot of different tissues. But for deciduous trees, a.k.a. broadleaf trees and shrubs, etc., it's not worth their time. Well, don't... Uh, are tardigrades technically... Plants or animals or somewhere in between? I think they're animals. Okay. Because they have some weird uh, cryopreservative issues or abilities because they can be frozen and then come back to life. Didn't they get, didn't somebody just crash a bunch of tardigrades into the moon accidentally? Oh, did they? I think they did. I hope so. (laughs) Because I want to see like a tardigrade colony on the moon. (laughs) I mean, it's the type of thing that if it happened, could be a fundamental game changer for the history of the Earth and its moon. Yes. I'm excited about that. It should be interesting to see what happens. Okay, plants. (laughs) (laughs) The plant progressively cuts off water and mineral supplies to the leaf as daylight hours get shorter. It seals the base of the leaf with sort of a cork or a bark cork is bark slowly so there are there are what are somewhat analogous structures to veins and arteries in a plant they're called xylem and phloem and they go from the woody parts into the softer parts like a leaf and so the tree is slowly cutting those off throughout the late summer early autumn season oh okay as less and less water and mineral gets to the leaf, the chlorophyll starts breaking down through enzymatic processes. So there are enzymes that are activated by less water, fewer minerals, less access to what's needed to go through uh, photosynthesis. So the leaf starts just breaking down the pigments. Now, what happens in the plant is instead of just breaking it down, the leaf falls, all of those amino acids that the chlorophyll is made of are wasted, a plant will often pull back in the constituents of chlorophyll into the stem so that they can be sent back to new leaves as they leaf out the next year. So it's surprisingly efficient. 
And fall colors actually have a little bit to do with that. So once the chlorophyll is breaking down, you can start seeing the yellows, the oranges, and the reds. The yellows and oranges have always been there. Hmm. Well, as long as there's been a leaf, not, not throughout like time and space. But <laughs> <laughs> they were part of the leaf. They were part of the photosynthesis <clears throat> process. But the red color, the really brilliant reds and things like maples only really start to be produced once around 50% of the chlorophyll has been broken down. It's a feedback loop where the plant starts creating anthocyanins and it will increase those in the leaf while also reducing access to the leaf for water and minerals. Why? It, it's most likely, and it's not 100% known, but it's most likely that the anthocyanins protect the leaves from light levels at colder temperatures, which allows for more nutrient reabsorption into the plant from the leaves. Huh. Anthocyanin production has also been shown to be antagonistic to nearby saplings. I don't know how. I couldn't verify this. So I, I read it on the internet on a Wikipedia page. It had a reference that didn't have a complete reference. <laughs> <laughs> so... It may be helpful in plant competition. Well, I know that like black walnuts are just toxic to anything around them. And that's generally why you won't find anything growing like underneath them, mm -hmm. except moss pretty yeah. much, which is just on the surface of the ground. But I really think that's because of the, the, what, the walnut, um, the actual oils that come off the nuts and not anything to do with the leaves. Yeah, and it could also be root exudates. That's pretty common. Okay. Our pecan tree, we have a little bitty pecan tree, and it's very competitive with the weeds around it. <laughs> and it's just from root exudates because it's never dropped nuts. But I do know that walnut oil and, and then the tannins that are in walnut husks, which is why walnut husks are so dark brown. They make great ink. Are uh, they are an excellent preservative and they're also pretty toxic. Yeah, I used to dye my hair with um, some dye that I found at Whole Foods that was like it was walnut husks, basically. Cool. Yeah, that would be a fun little project to try to collect enough black walnut husks because they'll stain anything. Yeah, a friend of mine actually did that. She mm -hmm. she collected walnut husks, ground them down, and dyed her hair with them. Cool. Yeah. Just like in our last episode, if you can do it yourself, it's appealing. <laughs> don't kill yourself, though. Please don't, yeah. The anthocyanin production ramping up explains some variation in fall colors from year to year. I don't know how attentive most people are to fall colors, but it's something that I pay close attention to because I really like plants. And I notice when... Oaks tend to be very yellow versus turning brown and then just dropping all their leaves. Or, you know, there's particularly brilliant maples or the maples just kind of look shriveled and sad. Anthocyanins are more abundant when there is more light. So this lends credence to the thought that they might be light protective. Yeah. So if there are clear, bright fall days and cooler evenings, it means more red pigments are produced for those plants. So it means a more brilliant fall. Ooh. There's also a thought in terms of why any colors remain in leaves after chlorophyll breakdown starts is it could be a signal to insects that it's time to find a place to hibernate. It preserves populations of pollinators and preserves ecosystem function, and it also reduces parasitic load, so aphids will avoid red leaves. So 
if you've got an aphid infestation and your leaves start turning red, aphids are like, mm, time to go to sleep. We're you know, winter's coming. Huh. And then they'll, I was going to say bugger off, but I think that's pretty rude. <laughs> but it's amusing, so I'm going to say it. <clears throat> you done already said it. I did. <laughs> it may also reduce the efficacy of herbivorous insect camouflage, which makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So it can sort of extend the lifespan of the plant, reduce parasitic loads, reduce insect damage during a time where, because the weather is colder, it's just more difficult to function. If, if you are, you know, a plant and you're trapped outside and cannot knit yourself a hat and sweater. <laughs> now, I had mentioned that a lot of the constituents of chlorophyll as they're broken down are pulled back into the stems of whatever plant is slowly killing off its leaves. It's also the case that some of the sort of wastes of the plant, because plants have more waste products than just carbon dioxide, which is released through leaves. But, you know, minerals they don't need, immune system junk that's left over from the year can be actually sent to the dying leaves. And then once the leaves fall off of the trees, you know, it's kind of like poop. poop. (laughs) Uh, And my husband now has my daughter saying that leaves are tree poop, (laughs) which I'm sure will be fun to explain at daycare. Uh, speaking of leaf poop, why do leaves turn brown? It's because they're poop. Well, it's because cell walls are brown. Oh, okay. <laughs> when all other pigments have been broken down into amino acids and sometimes drawn back into the trees and plants to be re- used the next year or just broken down in general, because you'll notice it's not just leaves that are brown that fall to the ground. You can collect all different colors of leaves. Mm-hmm. So those pigments eventually break down and, and end up decomposing. But cell walls are brown. And so, dead leaves are brown. Hmm. How long does it take for an oak leaf to decompose? <laughs> we discussed this in the helium balloon episode. Yay! And six to 24 months. Oh, okay. In the natural world, you can accelerate it by composting. So you can break the leaves up into smaller pieces so that they're easier for microbes to get a hold of. And you can turn them so that the microbe communities are encouraged to go to different parts of the leaves, but if you just got oak leaves dropping in your yard, it can take up to two years for them to decompose. I would have thought a little longer, but Mm -hmm. what do I know? Now I know, six to 24 months. And that was the scale that was given in our helium balloons episode, and we've since adopted it. Yeah, exactly. Decomposition scale. (laughs) (laughs) How many oak leaf life, or fallen oak leaf lifespans is it? Depends, six to 24 months. So that's where the green goes. It actually gets broken down and then sucked back into the plant. Cool. To some extent. It also, you know, as, as the tree loses its leaves, it may just fall to the ground and decompose there. I'm so ready for fall right now. Me too. <laughs> it's so hot here. It, <laughs> it's going to be 92, 93 today. I know. No, stop. <laughs> I mean, it is it is August. So. I know. But it stays hot into like October here. At least. We've At had least. 70 degree days in December. I mean, that's nice though. It can be. 70 degrees is nice. Yeah, that's it's much more tolerable. 95 <laughs> and 85% humidity yeah. is like walking around in soup. Yep. <laughs> 
Wow, awesome. Thank you. Oh, sure thing. And I'm going to talk about where do confiscated uh, or seized guns go? What happens to guns that are seized by the police? And the answer really isn't all that cut and dry because it largely depends on the state you're in. And I was actually surprised to learn this. For instance, in states like Ohio, seized guns are destroyed. It's actually part of their laws in Ohio, whereas right over the state line in Kentucky, they have to be auctioned and sold. So it just really depends on the state you're in. So... What do I mean by confiscated or seized? Uh, guns that are seized because they're they might be evidence in a crime. They're raids of illegally cashed guns. Like if there's a court order from a de- domestic violence situation, the police will actually go in and confiscate all the offenders' guns. Uh, there's contraband if you are not supposed to have that gun and you're not a registered owner of that gun, uh, it'll be taken away from you. Or from voluntary seizures, seizures, seizures from gun buyback programs. So uh, occasionally, places will have gun buyback programs. Well, they'll they'll take all weapons, no questions asked, and they'll just take them from the public and destroy them. So I'll give you a list of the states that sell confiscated guns as part of their laws: Arizona, Georgia, Kansas, Louisiana, Michigan. Montana, North Dakota, Texas, Tennessee, West Virginia, and the great state of North Carolina, the state that we're both in right now. And since I live here, I did a little bit more research on this. There was actually a really informative document that I found called The Disposition of Personal Property. It was online after I did a Google search, and it is what happens according to NC state law with property, which includes fire gun, firearms, fire guns, <laughs> firearms that were seized or confiscated by the police. It mentions donation, electronic auction, and public auction. In the case of guns or deadly weapons, if they do not have legible identifiable numbers, so all guns should have the serial numbers, numbers or are not able to be used anymore, then they must be destroyed. So, it also appears it is up to the judge in the case of the gun if it was used in a crime, and it sounds like a lot of the time if they're used in a violent crime, they're pretty much locked away in evidence forever. Um, and you can find this just by ncdoj.gov search if you're interested in the disposition of property by law enforcement. So where and how do they sell them? Well, for the most part, they auction them. They'll have a public auction um, on a cursory online Google search. I found so many different online auctions of police confiscated guns. And like I said, it was by state. So we have, it looks like 11 states that actually, it's part of their laws that they'll sell the guns. And it, it the selling of firearms obviously has to go through licensed firearms dealers, so unlike the, unlike the episode we did on Lost or Unclaimed Mail, these guns will not be on sites like AuctionGov or NCGov or anything like that. They're actually special auctions. So it'll be like a sheriff seizure or a police auction, and it'll be very special auction. A lot of the time, only dealers, it seems, are invited to these auctions. And there will be special live auctions, too, that... Uh, 
dealers can go to, but sometimes they are also online. The reaction by police officers, it seems to be really mixed. Many of the cops and people in law enforcement generally feel like it's just putting guns right back out on the street for them to come back all over again. It's this nasty cycle. But then again, some people see guns as funding law enforcement agencies like gun sales, funding law enforcement agencies and other state programs. So it's really a mixed bag, and I certainly see how where the police officers can feel that the guns are just going back out onto the street to kill more people. I can certainly see that line of reasoning, um, but also the funding of law enforcement agencies that, that seems, I don't know. I think that we could do a lot a whole podcast on funding law enforcement agencies because the funding sources that law enforcement agencies are required to come up with on their own is unfortunate. Yeah. And then the lack of funding for a lot of programs and activities for law enforcement. And it's just a long list of things that could probably be done differently to benefit everybody. It's a mixed bag. It really is. So if they aren't auctioned, what happens? The, the, the police department, depending on their discretion and the order by the judge, may actually keep and refurbish some of the guns for training purposes or departmental use. So if they're in good repair, they will actually, um, and the paper trail is correct, they can actually uh, decide to use them for training purposes or to hand out to the officers. But that's really a small fraction of them. So when they're destroyed, they are checked off by serial, serial number on the gun. They're carefully kept track of and checked off by serial number. They're basically chopped up into pieces and then melted down in furnaces. The gun serial numbers, as I said, are noted and marked and recorded and checked off, and then they're recorded as destroyed. So there's a certificate that goes along with it. The end product is obviously steel and other metals, and those are used and recycled into other things, maybe bridges, maybe schools, I don't know. Steel and metals are extremely recyclable. So then I came across a question, and I'd never really heard of this because I guess I've lived a very vanilla life, but... So what if my gun was kept by the police for safekeeping? I was like, what, is, what does that even mean? This means, and I found out, that if you are in a car accident and your vehicle has to be towed away to an auto shop, the police officer might take uh, possession of your weapon or any of your valuables that might be in the car. Say you're hurt and there's a, your, your gun is in the locked box in the back of your car, as well as your diamonds and jewels, and I don't know why you're driving around with that stuff, but apparently you are. The, the police officer might actually take it for safekeeping, which means that it is not evidence because it was not part of the crime, but they don't want it to be lost or stolen while it's at the auto shop. They don't want anybody to steal your gun and then go rob someone with it while it's not in your possession. So generally, if they weren't involved in a crime, depending on the state and police department, you just have to go in and fill out paperwork and say, hey, this is my gun. You kept it for safekeeping. And after a certain number of days, they have to give it back to you. So, I mean, it's really just depending on the state you're in, and it sounds like if you're not in one of the 11 or 12 states the guns are generally either going to be used in training purposes out on the um, for the law enforcement, or they're going to be destroyed. 
And some pl- places are really serious about gun buyback programs and destroying them. And then, of course, there are the 11 states that actually sell them at auction. All right. What about plastic guns? They're destroyed. They just as get well. chopped and melted? Yeah. Okay. Just not as recyclable. Plastic guns are generally, they're pretty dangerous you can usually only use them once or twice because they tend to destroy themselves yeah i I, i'm not an advocate for really plastic anything (laughs) plastic like explosives are just ieds in your hand pretty much (laughs) like i don't want people talk about 3d printed guns i'm just like that I mean, that's going to shoot once and never be able to be used again. It's it's still a deadly weapon, but still, you're going to hurt yourself with it. And you could just 3D print like a neat lamp or something. I know. Peace and love, man. <laughs> Who is, if you know this, the keeper of the serial numbers? The law enforcement agency. Okay. And then, how, do you know how the ATF comes into this, if at all? Um, I think that if they believe that... that I think that you, the law enforcement agency, from what I was reading, they have to keep pretty good records of the destruction of the guns. So they're going to keep track of that stuff. And if they're looking for a weapon that might be registered and they think that it was involved in a crime, they're going to come and see if it was destroyed or if it's still in evidence locker somewhere. Cool. Yeah. All right. Yeah, those states are super scattered, like crossing state lines. To get to a completely different law structure would not be terribly difficult. No, it's very strange. And it sounds like in the case of Ohio and Kentucky, it sounds like the place where they destroy the guns from Ohio is actually in a plant in Kentucky. (laughs) So it was very strange. So Ohio destroys all their guns as per their law, not including the ones that they keep for departmental and training purposes. And, um, Across the lines in Kentucky, they sell them, but the place where they destroy the guns is actually in Kentucky. So it was it was a strange news story that I read, and you can find it um, online. I think it was WRTV. It was like their news article. It was confusing, but I found it extremely interesting because the someone was talking to the sheriff, and he basically said, "Oh yeah, we destroy all of them here," and the news person said well don't they go to the place in Kentucky to be get destroyed and he's like yeah and it they were laughing about it so I was like it was very strange yeah interesting it's interesting living in a federal republic yeah (laughs) yes with states rights and we don't have really any comprehensive federal gun laws besides the background checks so it's pretty much a mosaic and a patchwork all right thanks Sarah yep where does it podcast.com? <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to the best podcast ever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Join us again next week.